Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Mom deserves the best and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive of rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Build the portfolio of tomorrow today with alternative investments previously reserved for only the top 1%. Yield Street's cutting-edge investment products are designed to grow your wealth, bringing you one step closer to the financial independence you crave. With minimums at just $500 and access to investments in art, real estate, venture capital, and more, the future of alternative investing is now with Yield Street. Visit YieldStreet.com to get started. That's YieldStreet.com. Hey, it's Jay Zawoski. Thanks for tuning in to this special edition of the Madhouse Chicago Hockey Podcast. This past weekend, I had the opportunity to sit down with my buddies and author friends Tab Bamford and Evan F. Moore. We each discussed our own books, mine, The Big 50, the Men and Moments That Made the Chicago Blackhawks, Tab Bamford's book, An Illustrated History of the Chicago Blackhawks, and Evan Moore's book, Game Misconduct, Hockey's Toxic Culture, and How to Fix It. The three of us were at Bookies Together. The voice you're going to hear first is that of Keith Lewis, the owner and proprietor of Bookies. Then you'll hear us have a panel discussion on the writing process, the Blackhawks and hockey at large. There's a point in the conversation where we take a question from the audience. I did the best I could to sort of amplify the question there, but uh, hopefully you can hear it out okay. But I hope you enjoy this conversation. It was a great time. Uh, and if you'd like to pick up any of our books, please do it through Bookies Bookstores. Uh, there's one in Homewood. There's one on 103rd and Western. Uh, and of course, you can look them up online, Bookies Bookstores, and they will get any of our books in your hands promptly. Uh, also, make sure if you're in the neighborhood of an independent bookseller, you support those booksellers. Keeping them in business is hugely important. So without further ado, here is our conversation from Saturday, November 20th at Bookies in Chicago. Hello to the virtual audience and welcome to Bookies in Chicago at 10324 Southwestern Avenue. Uh, today we are here to have a panel discussion about the uh, about the Blackhawks and hockey in general. And I've invited some fantastic guests to be with us today. Um, first of all, in no particular order, I've got Evan F. Moore here to my right. He's a Chicago-based journalist, a syndicated columnist, an educator, and a content writer. He grew up on Chicago's south side in the South Shore neighborhood and graduated from Morgan Park High School. Um, he is the author of Game Misconduct, Hockey's Toxic Culture, and How to Fix It. And uh, he also has a co-author, and I cannot remember the name, unfortunately. Jasmine Asaw. Thank you very much. Uh, she's from out of town. She couldn't be here today. Um, Jay Zawoski is here. Oh, it is in order, I guess. <laughs> Jay Zawoski is here. Jay is a lifelong Blackhawks fan. He is the managing editor of Podcasts and Multimedia for WBBM News Radio. He's a Blackhawks insider. He's the co-host of Madhouse Chicago Blackhawks podcast and also the I'm Fat podcast. Uh, he is the author of The Big 50 Chicago Blackhawks, The Men and Moments That Made the Chicago Blackhawks. And Tab Bamford is here all the way over. Uh, according to his bio, hockey has long been a passion in Chicago. Um, from Chicago Stadium to the United Center, the history of the Blackhawks franchise is as colorful as the city they represent. He's been a longtime season ticket holder and grew up in awe of Steve Larmer and Dennis Savard. Fell in love with the speed, grit, and skill of Jeremy Roenick and Chris Chelios and has been thrilled to cover the dynasty years 
uh, Taves, um, Kane, Keith, Hosa, and others. Over the past 15 years, his Blackhawks coverage has been featured on the Bleacher Report, NHL.com, Chicago Now, and other outlets. He's a columnist for the Fourth Period magazine and has owned his own Blackhawks site for more than 12 years. He's the author of two books about the Blackhawks, 100 Things Blackhawks Fans Should Know and Do Before They Die, on Triumph Books, like these guys, and also just has a new release, uh, Chicago Blackhawks, an illustrated timeline, which is on Reedy Press. And it's a pictorial history of Chicago's original six franchise. All right, and that is it. I will turn it over to Jay now. Thank you for joining us. We're on Facebook Live and we're streaming on Zoom as well. And I'll be monitoring. If you have any questions, let me know. And, uh, and uh, I'll let them know. Oh, that's yours. Thank you, Keith. Uh, thank you, everybody who's here. Thank you, everybody who's watching us live on uh, all the Zoom platforms, the Facebooks, all those great things. Um, my book's been out for a while, and I, the three of us have been discussing kind of how we wanted to handle the discussion today. And I think one thing we all agreed on um, that we've gotten questions about and that uh, we find interesting about each other is the process of writing the book. Uh, so I'm going to start with Evan, uh, whose book, uh, Game Misconduct, is out. It's fantastic. It's hugely important and hugely meaningful, especially in light of everything that um, locally we're experiencing with the Blackhawks. It's it's ex especially relevant now. How did the project come together, Evan, and uh, what was the writing process like for you? Well, um, over time as a freelance writer, I had all this information that, you know, that didn't get published. It could be either be a story got killed and you had this information, but also stories were also filed. And, you know, like people were still sending me information. So all these like years of like emails of people sending me things that, that were never utilized in any way, shape or form. And a little did I know that Josh Vina had been doing the same thing on her end. And I remember seeing a tweet from her saying, yeah, someone should, you know, um, pay me to write a book about hockey culture. And we already had kind of like known each other a little bit because I had been on our podcast. We had met once here back when I was still stringing for the uh, Daily Herald. I covered the Frozen Four hockey tournament. She was there for college hockey news, I believe it was. But at any rate, you know, I was just I DM'd her. I was like, hey, you know, like I saw your tweet about writing a hockey book. I was literally thinking about doing the same thing. Would you like to collaborate on this? And, you know, see what's with it and kind of all, all started. But in terms of actual, like, you know, on the point of a triumph was like, hey, you guys can do this book until, you know, when the manuscript was sent out. I mean, there was, I mean, I was also on the beat out with the Sun-Times at the time. And I had talked to a lot of people there who have written books and some people were like, hey, I, I took time off or I did leave. I was like, I literally can't afford that. So I, that's out the way. Um, so, and uh, I was like, well, what, what, I was talking to other colleagues and and uh, they were like, well, you know, I was pretty much rolling any time that, you know, I was on the weekends or, or while I wasn't, you know, working. So I was like, all right, I think I can, you know, fit that in. So it kind of went from there. And, you know, pretty much any time I had that wasn't around my kid or, or anything else, I was like, I'll write for an hour in the morning and then write for an hour at night. But other times, I'll be just sitting around and a thought up pop up. I'll be watching the game or whatever, and I'll just like jot on my phone on Google Doc, like, oh, let me just look at this, you know? And anything I saw that that I wanted to put in the book, like we had like a bunch of, a couple of uh, Google Sheets in terms of like who we wanted to talk to, which article did we want to reference, what book did we want to reference. Uh, every times we're like, you know, I wanted to um, interview this person, uh, text her and be like, hey, I'm interviewing so-and-so. Any, any questions you have? And she was like, yeah, sometimes she'll shoot me questions. Sometimes she'll do the same thing. I'll shoot her questions. And well, we came out stuck, stuck to what we knew. I mean, that book was a little different, you know, because she wrote, she into more so college hockey and youth hockey, and I was more so into, like, pro hockey and, like, everything that goes on with that in terms of engagement and, and fandom and everything else. So what we knew, we took, you know, we – took over those chapters, but also there are some chapters that are things that I frankly, you know, it was a blind spot on, you know, like, you know, like in terms of like ableism and specific in terms of, you know, homophobia and some of the stuff kind of goes on with that and in other areas and she took on a lot of the other stuff. But yeah, we looked over everything and there's some stuff in that book that when I was like, I crashed over <laughs> I read, I was like, oh wow, like that would happen in like you hockey and everything else. So I was like, wow, so yeah. 
Yeah, it's got to be a, a challenge too. And I know you, throughout the process of the book, you, you mentioned already, you know, you had to deal with finding out personal stories from people. It had to be sometimes hard to hear, right? And and to have people rehash those things to you, even if it was an email or whatever, um, it's got to be emotional. I know, I'm sure, Tab, you've had the same experience. Like since this Blackhawk scandal has happened, there have been a lot of people who have reached out to me and the, the three of us that have said, I don't really know what to do right now. You know, I, I'm so um, upset about what happened with the Blackhawks. Well, that's us as fans and other people as fans, but some people are the real victims of this. And Rick Westhead, who is really at the forefront of the coverage of the Blackhawks scandal, says not a day goes by where he doesn't get, you know, a dozen emails a day from parents or former players that have been the victims of all the things that are outlined in your book from homophobia, ableism to sexual abuse and and worse, you know, uh, it's, it's, it's gotta be for you to hear those stories and have to re- record them. That, that had to be kind of a, I would imagine a difficult experience sometimes. Oh yeah. I mean, you know, at the top of it for both of us, you like, I remember in high school, another teammate called me, you know, a racial slur, but also a Josh Venus, he was a victim of sexual assault. So, we have personal stories with, yeah. you know, some of the stuff that we, we covered. But, yeah, like, it's when people, you know, would obviously, like, I put this, like, you know, try to discredit the book and everything else that we said, tox, using the word toxic was too harsh for hockey, and people think we're trying to take down hockey. Like, no, we love hockey. It just needs to be better in a lot of ways. And always my counter to that is there was so much content that, we had to pick from, right? I mean, in terms of, you had I mean, we're not the one doing this, <laughs> you know, and like we turned in our manuscript in January and how much has happened in January of this year yeah. and how much has happened in, in hockey since then. I mean, I've said that even on your podcast and I always tell people like we had to leave out content. Like it was like stuff we were like, it was just so much. <laughs> yeah. And it, it's funny that people th- see it as, well, you're trying to bring the sport down. Like, no, we're trying to make the sport better. We're trying to make it for everybody. We're trying to, you know, I I don't know. There's, I think we all know this when people are confronted with things that they're uncomfortable with, sometimes they get defensive. And I think we've all seen that throughout hockey and and elsewhere in life. You know, it's just, it's just kind of the reality of what it is. Tab, I want to move over to yours. Um, The book is absolutely beautiful. Um, I received a copy. Thank you for that uh, about a month ago and was just blown away by the beauty of the images and everything inside the illustrated history we were talking before we started here and you told me the story about uh, the hockey hall of fame uh, image use. You want to tell that story to the, to the audience here? I thought it was pretty funny. Yeah, absolutely. So uh, as Keith mentioned, uh, all three of us are triumph book authors. Uh, my, I had a first book that came out the first edition actually 10 years ago um, with triumph. And so I'd been back through and dug into a little bit of Blackhawks history, but this project was really more of a coffee table book, visually driven, that was telling the story of the Blackhawks from inception to as close to the present as I can. And I turned my manuscript in before uh, the middle of October, so obviously a whole bunch of that perspective-wise changed dramatically two weeks after it hit shelves, because of course. Um, but uh, I mentioned to Jay, this book almost went to print in 2019. Um, a lot of it was written uh, and felt pretty good about it. And uh, the uh, Reedy felt great. It was this close to going out. Uh, but I had to figure out which photos I was using for everything in the book. And I was very specific looking for images that represented individual players or individual moments in a way that captured it. So like the 91 All-Star game, you wanted to have the guys on the ice during the anthem as that image. Well, when you have a 95-year-old franchise, which Wednesday was the 95th anniversary of their first game, it's hard to find old images. And I don't care if you're using Getty or USA Today or even if you're able to get into like the Tribune and the Sun-Times archives because photography rights and the way that photographers own a lot of their art is really unique, especially when you're dealing with a sport where the first third of the history of the franchise was half of the teams were in Canada and half of them were in the U S and there were only six and Canadian rights are totally different than the U S is right. So I reached out to a gentleman that I knew at the hockey hall of fame to see if we could use their images. 
And literally about 12 hours before we sent it to the printer, I got a call from the guy in Toronto who said, if you want to use our photos, that would be terrific. Let's talk. And that I called Reedy, my publisher, slammed the brakes on everything because when you go back, again, 95 years, finding in really strong images of the first Stanley Cup team, of the first, the actual roster that went on the ice in the first game. The first page of the book is the first game and the first inception of the team. And there's a photo of the first team that took the ice as the Chicago Blackhawks in there. I wouldn't have had that photo if I didn't get to use what the Hockey Hall of Fame had in their archives, which was an absolute blessing because they played Toronto in their first game. And, of course, Toronto has still, to this day, more media covering hockey than pretty much anywhere. So uh, it was a real blessing. But the the process between the two books was absolutely different because one is very visually driven and the other was a lot of words. And the high school son loves the one that's all pictures and the fifth grade son actually wants to read so uh so a very different writing process for the two but uh with the new one it was a huge benefit to be able to use the hall of fame's archives what's funny you know you mentioned how hard it is to find old photos for me the process of writing the big 50 where i had to pick 50 men and moments that's the project um there were a bunch i could almost do for memory right like the current well not current, the the latest dynasty, uh, the, the 2000s, the era before that, Ronick, Chelios, whatever. But then as you go back to the early history of the Blackhawks, to find out, here's the two chapters where I was, I, I literally almost uh, just quit, quit the project because it was so insane. Finding out anything about General McLaughlin, the first owner, General, Major? Uh, it, it was major. Major McLaughlin, yep. Uh, sorry, it's been two years since I wrote my book. Um, <laughs> finding anything about him and how it came to be was very, very difficult. And then when you get into the weeds of Arthur Wirtz and James Norris, and they like co-owned and then they split, and it was, and it felt like every story I read was a little bit different. There was like a little bit of different facts in every story, so... I kind of wrote that chapter as like the legend has it yes, because it was so hard to go back and find any old news archives of anything, you know, it, it just, things were just not saved back then the way they are now. Everything is stored digitally. So it's funny that, you know, going back to find the old history that I thought would be pretty easy turned out to be really, really difficult. And I had a guy, I was very fortunate, I have a, a relationship with um, Blackhawks historian. Bob Verde. Bob Verde, yes. So Bob Verde would be the guy that if I had a question, I would text. And every Now, he usually had an answer, but there was one day where I texted him. I said, hey, does this sound right? I think it was about a line combination. I don't remember what it was. like, give me five minutes, I'll get back to you. So <laughs> he calls me back. He's like, all right, I talked to Glenn Hall. And Glenn Hall said wow, that, probably, yes, that is, I'm like, what? You called Glenn Hall? <laughs> Things that only Bob Verde can <laughs> right. pull off. Hang like, on, I got to yeah. call Glenn and see what the answer is. I thought he was going to go check his notes or like check the history. Okay. All right, I just talked to Glenn Hall. And Glenn Hall said, yeah, that's legit. That's how it was. I'm like, holy cow. That was amazing. So, Tab, I'll start with you. Was there anyone that you sort of leaned on when you got stuck? Were there any resources that you found more helpful than you expected them to be during the process? Well, I, I think it goes back to writing the first book that I wrote, which was 100 Things Blackhawks Fans Should Know and Do Before They Die, which is fairly comparable to what you had, but it, it incorporates more experiences that fans should consider. So going to Rockford, having pregame meal at the Palace Grill, things like that, having breakfast maybe the morning after at the Palace Grill, Belfort style. Um, so with that... Uh, I actually, that's where I started to foster a relationship with folks at the Hockey Hall of Fame, um, just to dig back through and make sure that I was getting a lot of the really early facts right. Because you're right, there's so much gray area and urban legend that goes into this stuff with McLaughlin. And, you know, is it true that his actress wife scribbled out the original logo and he said, yeah, well, that looks great, honey, and went with it. Yeah, that's actually kind of the way that history. So I wanted to make sure with all of the urban legends that you hear that the in many instances it was, you know, like 
for lack of a better way of describing it, when you're drunk, you aim for the one in the middle. <laughs> with all the different fringe elements that go into some of these urban legends, I wanted to go with the one that was most widely and popularly accepted as being closest to fact. Um, so I was able to rely on a lot of those notes with the, with the most recent one, but then updating a lot of the things that came, uh, obviously, before the, this last scandal, but having so many... It's crazy in the year and a half between when it could have originally been published and then actually going through the end of last season. Ironically, uh, it, had it gone the first time that we wanted to put it out, uh, John McDonough being fired would have been the last thing in the book. Oh, wow. And I didn't want it to be a downer at the end, and so that's part of the reason that we pushed beyond, hopefully, uh, the pandemic and being able to sit here with you all and be in person. Um, and then you've got Brent Seabrook retires, Corey Crawford retires, Jomerson hangs it up, Patrick Kane hits every benchmark that you possibly can as an American-born player, Blackhawk. So it ends with a little bit of a, well, half of the team retired, but, you know, Kane still doing his thing. But I was able to rely on some of those early notes, but going back through and then with relationships that I've developed over the decades since the first one was written, add more voice and context to some of the stories that I told in the first one, which was fun, but it was also, there, there were moments that some of the things that I included, especially talking about Jonathan Taves playing through a concussion in 2011 in the series against Vancouver, that add a little bit more depth to some of the things that I, I just, I didn't know back in 2011 when I was putting that initial one together and talking about what it, 10 years ago was a huge rivalry between the Canucks and the Blackhawks, yeah. which uh, I, I'm not sure that has held up as well. Not Some really. <laughs> no. We're not all going to stay up tomorrow night to watch Quinn Hughes. No. Uh, Evan, how about you? Who were some of the uh, people or resources you were able to lean on uh, maybe from an unexpected place? Well, I mean, I talked to Lou Moore. I had known him for a while. If you are familiar with him, he's written a few books. He's a professor at Grand Valley State up in Michigan. That's Grand, Grand Valley State? Yeah. Okay. So, um. Yeah, he uh, always would send me archives of different things. And, like, I remember way back when I, I had written a story for Bleach Report some years ago about why it was so important that Wayne Simmons had won the All-Star MVP. And before that, I was asking him for a couple of things. And he sent me this article from, from Ebony Magazine from 1950. It was called Can Negroes Crack Big League Hockey? And they quoted uh, Clarence, Clarence Campbell. He was pretty much all an article. I'm like, wow, this is crazy. This is yeah, well, the trophies literally named after this guy. He's in the, you know, the Black Style Lifestyle magazine. I was like, wow, this is no idea. This is took place, you know. I was like completely like when he sent me the, the uh, the clip, I was completely floored because you didn't think something like that would be in you know every magazine that early. But at any rate, like it goes to show you, you know, how important the sport was. It was in the photo in the the photo in the articles. Uh, Full of all black and line. It was like her, Carnegie, his brother, and then another player, I can't guess name offhand, but it, some of the stuff that was basically said in there was, was pretty cool. And it was, shows you, it was, definitely shows you, like, what was the thinking of, you know, back then. And I guess things I lean on, because we all know Jack Silverstein, who writes, who mm-hmm. writes great writer. Yeah. And uh, his article, you know, that he wrote about how. You know, George, it kind of goes into what y'all saying about legend is this true, calling people up and fact checking and going to all these different channels and actually speaking to a lawyer and everything else, the attorney and everything else. <laughs> like he had to. And, you know, the, the league basically had a ban on black players like a, for over a decade. And Hallis was one of the people involved in it. And that article actually got people to, got the team to actually talk about it. So, and I noticed over time, something similar happened in hockey. Because you remember when Willie O'Ree, he was only in NHL from like parts and bits and pieces from 1958 to 1961, and from 1961 to 1974, there were no black players in NHL. And this is an era where the NHL tripled in size from six to 18 teams. So you're thinking more teams, more rotten spots, more looks for guys. Didn't happen until Mike March in '74 signed up, you know, played for the start for the Caps. But in terms of like. This research, the thing about a book is, you know, we you have Black Ice, you have, uh, what's the name of his book? Uh, it's a book by Glenn, I forgot his name, but it's basically called Breaking the Ice, and the Black Experience of Hockey. Hockey, And you have, like, a couple of players who've written books over time, like, or, like, like 
Val James and Herb Carnegie and folks like that. But with us, we just kind of just took a we took a really wide swing. And you're probably some people you probably we've seen people who read it over time. We're like it was a lot. I mean, like we wanted to fit in some other information, but kind of wrap this up and get more to your point. You know, like just there was a lot of you know, articles and books, and also found uh, some stuff at the Newberry Library about you know. Um, Fighting and like I saw one article. I think the headline was from the Tribune from probably a year. This what it said: "Hockey fans fight the police." I thought that was pretty funny. <laughs> and they had like photos of like cops arresting like hockey fans. So I thought it was pretty funny. But, but yeah, this yeah, this photos and like the, the, the photo in our book with uh, it was a foursome at this uh, golf tournament in the nineties. It was Bobby Hall, Brett Hall, on this other person. I know, and one of his friends or teammates or something like that. At any rate, this person nowadays is, you know, they work for a well-known congressperson here. And, like, uh, <clears throat> so he knew about the book and while I was writing, and he sent me this photo of this foursome, and he says Hull was saying all this stuff about black people and everything else, and he was, like, weird because he's a light-skinned black person in, in many thirsts. He passes, you wouldn't know unless you talk to him. So he's saying all this stuff, and he's saying, like, hey, you say, from what he told me, he's saying, like, friend walks off to the halls and, like, hey, you know, cut this shit, you know, he's, you know, whatever, you know, and <laughs> like other terms. And he sent me, he sent me the photo, and it's drawing. It's in the book, you're going to see it. And, you know, at first he was like, this happened. I don't want anybody to say anything about it. I don't want to be the, the guy that ultimate racist. I was like, whoa, whoa, hold up. <laughs> We've been doing this is out here. People know, <laughs> <laughs> you know, and and you know, I sent him some articles and everything else. And the timeline of this, he says, happened mid nineties, and this is after this. From what are you saying? This is before the comments he made in the Russian newspaper and everything else. So that we're it was sometimes we're kind of like I think we need to look more historical consistencies the there for Bobby. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, it's like we had to look at this timeline and everything else. And once I, because he showed me the photo, he didn't want to want to use it, want me to use that first. And I was like, okay, well, like I said, he didn't want to be the out hall. I was like, that's out there. I'll send you some articles. And then after that, he was like, use the photo. But at the same time, it was like, I had to blur out some faces, you know, because mm-hmm. obviously, you know, if people see that, other people going to have questions about things and everything else. So, yeah, it was definitely some, some of that. Yeah, that was one of the, and I talked to the publisher about this, and I said, look, it's a lot of chapters. It's a lot to get to. Am I sticking to hockey only? Are we getting into the personalities of these people? Because if you want me to write about the Golden Jet and his slap shot and his speed, that's one thing. If you want me to write about Bobby Hall, that's a different thing. Like you know, and that and and, and they sort of instructed like, well, you know, let's keep it as something a little more light, a little more hockey focused. And I think kind of looking back on it, I wish I'd acknowledge that a little more i did acknowledge some of the patrick kane stuff in there um but you know i I think in hindsight maybe i I let bobby off the hook a little bit and i shouldn't have because there is a long history of public comments made by him and um behavior and and stories that you know there's things that you can't write of course but there's also stories that everybody knows and um you know i think yeah, that's and I, that's the only one I couldn't find online with that episode where he was on sport ESPN Sports Center. Mm-hmm. You guys remember that show? Like that's the yeah. only episode I couldn't find online. Interesting, yeah. <laughs> interesting how those things can very disappear. subtle. <laughs> yeah, but it, it you know that was that was kind of you know as you finish the thing, you're like you know if I could have done something differently, maybe that's one of the things I would have done. You know, I'm not. It, I think I, I'm imposter syndrome is a big thing with me, and I don't know if you guys experience that too. Like I'm writing a book. That's an insane thought to me. To this day, when I see my book on the shelves, I'm like, that's not real. That didn't happen. There's no words in there. <laughs> it, just, it just seems like such a... That's uh, where someone is hiding their flask. It's obvious. <laughs> right, right, that's right, why right, I remember right. where I put it. That's it why my name is on it. It's for a flask, by the way. Yeah, if you want to get the pages those, out. Really, um, <laughs> but, you know, it's just... I think anytime anyone does not you could talk to, you know, the, the most successful... Uh, you know, Adele just put an album out that's going to be huge. If you talk to her today, say, what would you change? She'd probably have a list of 15 things, right? We probably all have that. So um, nothing to beat us beat up about, but it's just kind of like, yeah, I had an opportunity and I missed it. And I, I wish I hadn't, uh, I hadn't done that. One story I do love on, on the positive note 
that I'd always heard about when I was writing, but didn't really understand the scope of was how much Tony Esposito cheated. <laughs> like it's about the hockey or well, uh, so <laughs> well, he, but he, but he was, uh, yeah, hockey and hockey and yes. hockey. Uh, he, thank you. Thank you, Evan. He was a, uh, an innovator of equipment and he invented, uh, the blocker and he, you know, made his mask a certain way. But the thing that got me was he had like fishing line tied between, like, sewn between his legs so when he would go down and a puck would go between his legs, the net would stop the puck from going in. Um, that He was busted that doing that, obviously. Uh, he also would overstuff his goalie pads. And in the playoffs, when they would come in and measure the thickness and all that of the pad, uh, Tony would have all the equipment people unstuff it, hide the stuffing. They'd measure it, sew it, you know, sew it all back. The league would come and measure are they gone? Good. All right, stuff it all back. <laughs> stuff the pads back in. So just like those it's like stories. Like a boxer wrestler making weight and immediately going yeah. to Chick Fil A. Yes, exactly, yeah. exactly. Uh, it's, it's, it's just it's it's so funny. Then and um, you know, you hear things over the years, and then as you go see them in print, it's like wow, that really happened. And you verify with Bob Verdi, who wrote who know might have been Tony Esposito at that time to confirm that story. Um, but yeah, just. That was that was what was really fun for me as someone who thought I knew a lot about the Blackhawks. Like I went in scratching the surface and went in tab. I know like when you I'm sure same for you when you actually sat sat down to put pen to paper or keystroke to word doc, whatever you want to modernize it. Um, you probably learned a lot more than you know than you expected to. Yeah. And one of the things that a lot of people don't talk about is there is a little bit of a universal angst from a lot of especially Canadian players and people affiliated with Canadian teams towards the way that the Blackhawks handled their equipment back in the 60s and 70s because you know the again another urban legend that was confirmed uh Stan Mikita was the first player to use a curved stick blade uh, and that was, he allegedly broke his stick blade in practice and got angry and rifled one at the wall. And he was like, holy crap, look at what I just did. Can <laughs> it, and did it again. And then he was like, okay, we're going to start playing with this. And then Bobby saw what he was doing and said, how do you do that with a puck? And he was like, yeah, hey, watch this. And then everyone around the league, you know, they went and destroyed people for two months. And everybody was like, how are they doing this with the puck? And it was one of those where, if no one's done it before, how are we going to litigate it? How are we going to eliminate it? How are we going to make it illegal? So this was way before McSorley was getting, you know, slapped on the wrist for having too much of a curve. He created it. And so there were a lot of things that the Hawks were doing back in the day that were finding every little inch that they could to have some kind of an advantage with their equipment. But a lot of those stories... They're, they're fun because you see the ingenuity of the guys. And I think, you know, Evan, you, your book, you dig into everything from, like, the youth level and, like, the peewee all the way up to the professional and the rec league for adults. And I think one of the things that's universal about hockey that's different than every other sport is the equipment element. And there's so much personalization that goes into it. Mm -hmm. And you walk into a dressing room today – and you'll see every single guy, you, you know, doing something to their stick blade, retaping it. You see Patrick Kane with, you know, my wife calls it the lint brush on his stick every time they get done warming up. There's so much personalization and little tweaks that they make to everything so that it's just right for them. And that's what I think makes baseball different, hockey or, or football and basketball. A lot of that stuff's pretty uniform. Baseball gloves you personalize, but it's kind of like, you get the A2000 and then you break it in a little bit more than somebody else or you play with it for two years. In hockey, it's everything has got to be exactly the way that you personally want it. And there's a personality that comes out in that. And I think the fun thing digging into Blackhawks history for good and bad in, in the cases of some of the more eccentric individuals like Bobby, but in many ways for the good is there have been some really incredibly colorful personalities that have come through 
the Blackhawks organization and some ridiculous stories of stuff that they've done away from the ice and not in malicious, like should have put them in jail ways. There are a few of those too. Um, but you know, one story that I will always laugh about is Chris Chelios remembering that Ed Belfort, who was young at the time and not making a ton of money parked in his driveway before game four against Pittsburgh in the cup final. And they rode down together and knew that they were going to get their butt kicked. Dirk Graham was the only one who wasn't ready to lose that night. And they get done, and they went out and painted the town because that's what those Blackhawks teams did. Uh, very much a grew up out of the 85 Bears group, those early Ronick teams and Chelios teams. Uh, and they hopped a limo back to Chelios's house, and he just opened the back door of Belfour's 8-year-old Saab, threw him in the back seat drop the keys in the cup holder and let him sleep it off in his driveway. <laughs> and he said, I woke up at some point the next day and the car was gone. So I figured he got home in one piece, but those are little things that you can't do with social media anymore. No, you're not going to have, you know, the, the best young goaltender in the league, sleeping it off in the backseat of his eight year old sob in another player's driveway. It's, it's wild to think. And I'm glad you mentioned 85 bears because that was like animal house in a locker room, you know? And, and, I don't know if that could happen today. I don't think it could. I think there's just too much access. There's too much knowledge that, you know, you mentioned social media being an impact, but like the things that we as consumers of sports are like, that is ridiculous. Now, <laughs> 20, 30 years ago, I can't imagine just drunk driving stories and at a bar and like everybody in the 80s and 90s that were maybe all right. Like I think about my uncles and stuff. They've all got stories about Roenick and, and Chelios and those guys being out and, and just on the town, not necessarily doing anything bad, but they were just part of the fabric. And, and when my wife and I started dating, when the Hawks are real bad, this is the Arnison and Bell Calder era. You can go to Stanley's on Sedgwick and the entire team would be there after the game, just hanging out. And Mark Bell would leave with one, Maybe two, sometimes three women. It was just like, that's just how it was. And this was not that long ago, you know? And now I think, <laughs> you know, if there's anything good that comes from social media, maybe it's the fact that, like, there's an accountability now that guys just can't act that way. And we, I know they still do, but um, maybe just not as much. And I don't know. It's just to think about how, how recently the Ronick Chelios era feels in terms of, like, my mind's eye to the reality of like the difference in society from then to now. And that sort of steers me a little bit toward back to you, Evan, a little bit. And as we're looking at hockey evolving here and, and they've been, they're one of the first organizations, professional sports organizations to come out and say hockey is for everyone. I will ask you, have they done enough uh, aside from saying it aside from all the cute little graphics and promo commercials, has the NHL done enough to make the game accessible for more people than it was, you know, 20, 25 years ago? Uh, I mean, it's a good question. I always tell people, I think back to what happened with Devontae smith Pelly at the United Center, and that was actually during February, Black History Month. But there's also NHL's uh, Hockey's for Everyone campaign and everything else. And, you know, we had that picture in the book about, you know, him being in the county box and what was said to him, and you, when you you sitting there watching that, like people yelling and laughing, kids laughing, or the kids know what's going on, or or anything like that. But you know, NHL they started the diversity stuff back in 1995, and obviously, look at the entire scope of it; it's not working. I always tell people like hockey to everyone is hockey's uh, answer to all lives matter, and uh, you know, and uh, you know, like. I just want them to do the kind of thing that kind of happened in the NBA with the 80s where where it went from one period to, like, all these players were getting in trouble for, like, drugs and there was a lot of black players. But, but also at the same time, you know, they kind of lean into where their fan base was going. What was their, new fa their fan base? And you see how that league is thriving off, thriving off. I'm not saying they have all the, all the, uh, all the um, you know, issues or anything like that. But with hockey, you just kind of real, you just kind of look at it over time. Like, you know, why did that happen? And I feel like I'm one of the few people out there that kind of follows the NBA and also follow the NHL pretty good. So I got to see, I get to see all these differences because you know both sports are taking place at the same time. And 
you know, winning does a lot. Like when the Blackhawks started, you know, um, back in I'll say, way oh nine, like right before you mm-hmm. know Stanley Cup, and people were at that uh, the uh, outdoor classic game at, at Wrigley, and I was kind of like, even though they lost that game, but I was still, I feel like that was the game for me where I feel like they kind of turned the corner of the franchise and everything else. And no matter where you're from, people they like winners. I mean, like yeah. Even go back to the 70s with the Flyers and when we saw the crowds of, of their championships and everything else, like, that was a pretty diverse crowd. You know, even as Philly's a big city. But anyway, here, I mean, people don't be, they understand, feel like it. They don't know that, for instance, like, when I talk to people about the book and stuff I read over time, they'd be like, oh, you know, I grew up in the last Chatham, man, and we were playing hockey in, in, in the street growing up and everything else, and Talk to people who grew up in West Garfield Park and everything else. And one of my uh, colleagues from DePaul, he actually grew up in South Shore. He's a white man. He grew up in South Shore maybe 10, 15 years earlier than me. And he was telling me, like, hey, they go to the park and, you know, throw some water out there and let it uh, freeze up and play. So I would say what they what the league really needs to do, I mean, I don't want to just put on the NHL because it's not just an NHL thing. So I would say, like, this, you know, this – in terms of exposing it to people, like hockey dismissive, you know, all over the place, you know, no matter where you're from. And I started noticing that when my own kid, my own daughter who plays and is it's, it's even dismissive. But but also I will say what they can really do is just hey, like just lean into what these what fandoms of areas or they're not hockey hotbeds or for marginalized communities and what they're into and hockey's always had a spot and and in our community, like, you know, we were talking earlier about equipment and, and innovation, like, you know, the, the slap shot and the butterfly style goal, of goal tending came from the Color Hockey League in Nova Scotia. And also, see, growing up, I saw a lot of rap, like, I was actually introduced to hockey through rap videos, through, you know, TV raps and seeing all my fair rappers, you know, wearing hockey jerseys, like, you know, like boot camp click, they were always wearing a Blackhawks jersey. Mm-hmm. And then you had Craig Mack wearing the Charleston uh, Chiefs jersey. And like, yeah. you, and you saw your favorite rapper and singer wearing these jerseys. So it was like, you know, like, why can't you let us lean on that? Like, <laughs> lean, like that's, that's your answer right there. But for some reason, people are like, whoa, whoa that's a little, a little much. You know, so. And yeah, even I, today, I see some videos, I'm like, how the hell did Calgary Flames get in there? <laughs> 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 like, LA Kings, I get it. Blackhawks, I get it. Calgary Flames? <laughs> nice looking jersey, man. That's all that matters. Yeah, those uh, true. those '80s. Uh, yeah, you got a question? Uh, something kind of stuck out, uh, especially with your book, Evan. And uh, it's something that came back to me. I grew up in this neighborhood, and this, this is a hockey neighborhood. I think every high school in this area has a team. Uh, even Morgan Park had one up until the early, like early '90s. Yeah, we were still there. We were still there. Yeah, even Chicago State a hockey team. Most people don't realize that. So. I was thinking back to when I was a kid, because, you know, you're like, okay, why didn't you turn? No one asked me to play hockey. You know what I mean? Like, I saw a couple of kids in elementary school who had their youth jerseys, but someone asked me to play baseball. Someone asked me to play basketball. Someone asked me to play. Hell, someone tried to put a tennis racket in my hand. No one ever asked me to play hockey. And the thing, the only conclusion that I, I came to was no one wanted me. And I helped that for a really long time. I didn't engage with hockey until I think with the the rolling years, really, because I mean they were all over the place. But after that, it just went kind of went back into this black hole of, of not, me not paying attention until the, the Kane and Taves era started. So that was my big concern about you know like what I pulled from the book and what I pulled from hockey culture is that. It's not an inviting culture. It's like they're not looking for participants. You should just recognize how good it is and just come on over. And I, 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 I think a lot of the traditional hockey fans struggle with that. Boy, that that is accurate. And, and even beyond, and and you're, I, I can't imagine what that feels like. It does. It's what you're saying is it's not for me, right? And what we've seen, even in a more broad term is when the Hawks got good, there was a large portion of Hawks fans gatekeeping. No, no, no. You were not here when they were good. You're not allowed to be part of this now. The bandwagon is not accepting applications because it's I've like deemed myself. It's like a reward card or something. Like, I was here when this is, I always tell people it's like a, a punk rock band. And, like, since we're all Chicagoans, mostly, like, 
you know, just use this metaphor, like this uh, comp, like it's like going to see your favorite band at Empty Bottle or Sub T or or the Muni, and all of a sudden, before you know it, they're they're playing at House of Blues and they're playing at the Ravinia, and you're like, hold on, what's going on? Here? This is weird. No, <laughs> no, 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 no. You can't have that. Right. <laughs> sure, the albums are a hell of a lot better and more and more well produced, but no, I want to sound like it's in the garage, and you know there was. There is part of it to there is in the in the winning aspect of it in the bandwagon aspect of it. There's like kind of a pride, but people know that about you. I remember when the Hawks won, people were text me, "Hey, I'm so happy for you that the Hawks won." Right? Um, and I don't know. I, I think it feels like a specifically hockey thing. And you've been in locker rooms. I've been in locker rooms for all different sports, and hockey players are more guarded. They're more of a, I don't know, I, I think click is probably the wrong word, but it's there's definitely like an us versus them feel um, with hockey players and, and non-players. And I don't, I don't really get why that is, and it's, it's frustrating. Um, but, I, but I can't imagine, like, growing up as a kid, and Evan, you can speak to this, of course, like, <laughs> that that just wasn't presented as an option to you guys. Yeah, for you me. Know? Like yeah, it's, for, sure. yeah. for me, like, it was... I think it was more so because of my family and what things they're into. My mother and father were Chicago public school uh, teachers. And my mom was uh, into science fiction and she was a big, big tracking. My dad was into like holistic medicine and distance running and history. So all these different things were normalized. And, and I, my first hockey game I feel like I saw was in 1988 Calgary Olympics. And I think Russian and, and I think Soviet Union and Sweden were playing. I think that was the gold medal game from what I remember. And y'all have to look that up and fact check me. But, uh, yeah, and I just remember, like, I just saw the sport as it is. And it comes back to someone like Tony X, who's like, you know, like yeah. uh, Game 7, would just, like, he would just lie to what he saw. He just saw the game as is. And he was, like, it was, like, a life-changing thing for him. He actually, he's actually in the book. And, like, uh, you know, that's like, kind of how I looked at it. You know, like, I was like, this is awesome. I want to be a part of this. But. But there was like a distance between like watching it on TV and obviously over time, you know, see a whole lot of black and games on TV. But also, I didn't live around any ranks. <laughs> so, yeah, like even to this day, I really, I mean, really don't. Like the closest one is maybe that one that just opened up in Hammond, you know. But other than that, I mean, it was a thing for me where I was just like, I'm not going to let no, me being the only person out there stopped me. I was like, I thought, because I only started, most people don't know this, I only started playing hockey maybe like four or five years ago. And at that age, we obviously at that point, I don't give a shit who sees me on the ice. Like, <laughs> shit. Like, so, I mean. If I catch you, you're going to feel it. Yeah, yeah, you know, like, yeah. At first, I would, I did something, like, it's a pretty funny story. Like, I guess when I, yeah, I, I, back in the day, I used to write for this website called Chicago Side. You guys remember that? Like that, I think Tab, you were on there a few times. And so I had written a story about you know growing up being a black hockey fan. And in the article I mentioned like, hey, I'd like to learn how to play one day. And someone read it. We met up, and they gave me some equipment. So I'm just like, all right. Well, at this point, I'm gonna learn to skate for it. Skate for it. I get out there. So. I think I saw on Groupon like half off some lessons at a rink in the end. So I threw out there. It's like out there with kids. I'm just like, like <laughs> <laughs> you know. So, oh, yeah. So over time, you know, I lean into it. Where it's like wherever there is some ice, if it's like ten minutes, fifteen minutes, an hour, like I was just out there just skating and like it's that's and I started to see over time why are people act so nutty over it and why you know it's us versus then i think i kind of lean in, into that too you know like where you kind of like oh i'm doing this thing and it's only, only a group of us and everybody we're the cool kids and the rest of you all like you know are whack and we're, we're doing this thing you know and so it definitely i can see where that plays into it but it's also a detriment to someone who who probably didn't have that who has that fear of like even lack of the sport because when i talk to a lot of black folks about it they're like, oh, okay, cool. Well, it, but they always say, I like hockey, but. And the but is what Amen is saying and what we've seen over time. So I think before we wrap things up here, and we want to thank Bookies for having us out and everybody for showing up and everybody watching on the Zoom. I think when we talk about hockey weaving its way into uh, the communities where it's not typically uh, available and that access isn't there, where does it begin? Because... You could say, well, kids aren't going to play unless there's a rink nearby. 
And then the people who would be funding the rink would say, we're not going to build a rink here. People here are not interested in hockey. How do you get those two sides to come together and sort of find an answer? And how do you get access for those for those neighborhoods and for those communities that, that just don't have access to rinks? What like how would, what would be your argument to the investor or the park district or the community that was sort of hesitant to build a rink in that area? Do what this community did. Like they got that rink down the street there. Mm-hmm. I mean, they probably demanded it, and because most of their kids, like instead of going all the way to the suburbs or whatever, like we need to have this here. And like you just think about how many rinks are are in the city proper, like maybe five or six. And the rest of us go to the suburbs, and I would say, like, this kids, they see the sport for what it is. They want to be a part of it. And I would say, like, not I'm not saying there's going to be a thing where it was, like, when Tiger won the Masters and everybody's like, all these black kids are going to go and play golf, and that hasn't happened yet. <laughs> and uh, so, you know, I'm not saying uh, we should be doing something of that effect, but – Make it accessible. Like this, I mean, I know the Blackhawks are doing some things around town and everything else, and and like let's start like with that. Like this, let's make it like accessible. Like this, have rinks and not saying you said have rinks, but you should. But also this, this like make normalize it. Basically, <laughs> <Right. laughs> I feel like ice availability has been the really easy crutch for the answer in a lot of conversations. Mm-hmm. I've talked to players, and they talk about. We want hockey to be an inclusive sport, but and we want really good athletes in the game, but I'm not getting on the ice until 11 o'clock at night as a 12-year-old, and so I don't want to make it harder for me to make a team or make it 1 o'clock in the morning that I'm getting on the ice. And so there's this, I want everybody to come in, but I don't want my life to be harder element. And there's a lot of other factors that weigh into then where the invitations go when you don't want to make your life harder. And you bring up a great point. And I think when you look back before a lot of the rinks were built in the suburbs in the nineties and, you know, Chelios had a lot to do with a lot of those rinks getting put together. I think the reality that some investors have to own is how many rinks are there in Chicago proper? Like six, seven, eight, two Johnny's fifth, third, what else? Like, yeah. guess what? If you add another rink, it'll fill. Because all the kids that don't want to skate at 11 o'clock at night at 5th 3rd will figure out a way to take a bus or carpool or whatever to play at 7 o'clock in your rink. And that'll open doors for more communities to get access to ice time. But there's so many kids that are fighting to get on the ice, and they're open 24 hours a day. Yep. If you build it, they will come. And that is more true in hockey than anything else from an ice use perspective. I think the bigger problem that hockey has is the cost of the equipment. Mm -hmm. I mean, we, and that's something that goes to manufacturers that goes to professional organizations making donations, but you have to find a way little league. You go out and most house little leagues will have a couple really crappy old bats that they got a deal on. And every team, if you show up, you go buy a $30 glove and there will be a bat and a hat waiting for you. If you want to play basketball, you need a ball and something to effectively throw it at. You could be in an alley with a board above the wall and you've got somewhere that you can play basketball. Hockey has very unique circumstances that you need to play it under and the equipment costs a lot of money. And so I think you, you need to lower the barrier for entry there and then just get people together. Because the more that you engage with each other, I mean, we we met working on Chicago side. Mm-hmm. The more you get people together, the more there's engagement, the more you see an acceptance and an openness to having a much broader group of people playing the game. And we're, we're all better for it. Well, and it's doable, too, as we see, you know, corporations just making hand over fist money, you know, just stacking it sky high. It's sort of an aside, but when you mentioned that, it it brought this up. Before we came here, we went to Guitar Center. I had to get a couple microphone cables, and I was walking around looking around, and I was really playing guitar a lot when I was in high school, and I would go into guitar stores, and the guitars would be like $1,200, $1,500, whatever. We went into Guitar Center today, and as soon as you walk in the door, there's three guitars for $89. There's a guitar that comes with an amp and a case, Made by Fender. It's a lower level. 
The starter but kit. It's a starter kit to get kids playing guitar because those companies know if this kid buys this little Fender Squire for $89, he's going to love it. She's going to love it. They're going to play the rest of their life. And then that $1,800 strat up there in 10 years, they're going to buy it. Hockey can do the same thing. You could make really affordable sticks, really affordable skates and pads. It's absolutely doable. And it's up to these corporations like Bauer and in uh, you know and and uh, Sherwood and name them all of them right. They can make an affordable line, an accessible line of hockey equipment for kids. And uh, again, we keep coming back to the term access. That's what it's going to take. Give the kids the opportunity to play. I remember a couple years ago, we took Addie St. Jude just had like a come out and play hockey day. They gave her equipment. She's like. I hate this. This is not for me, but but she had the opportunity to try, you know? So I, I think it is so doable and it's such an obvious goodwill thing for these big companies to do where, you know, they're shipping players cases of $300 sticks every week. You can make a little, you know, $15 stick and $40 shoulder pads and it's absolutely doable. And uh, once these kids, whatever their background get to learn this sport that we all love they're going to fall in love with it too and they're going to play and it's going to be it, it, all it's going to do is improve hockey top to bottom oh, yeah definitely because my kid you know I was, but her you know i was just like we we tried like you know typical stuff like dance ballet gymnastics you will know, flip out scream i want to do this blah blah <laughs> and she's aware of hockey you see me play we have like stuff in the house and she has been the game, so it's, it's normalized for her when I was, when we did the Kendall Coin uh, uh, thing where it was the, they had girls come try out. But obviously, she's had hockey stuff. I mean, she'd, I've done stuff with her for years, and, you know, when we put her out there, I'm like, all right, it's, all right, here you go. And I'm thinking she's not going to like it or whatever, but she's really, like, taken to it. I'm obviously pretty, like, shocked, you know. And But even as her age, she, she also you know, realizes she wanted to – you kids out there that look like she does, and that's been a, a conversation we've had because I've always was like, oh, well, we'll have this conversation at some point, but the way the world works, somebody at best it, I had that conversation with her before, you know, yeah. someone else does, unfortunately. Else does, right? And so, like, you know, like, when we've seen this whole thing with the Blackhawks and everything else, even before that, I'll always tell her, hey, like, if someone says something to you on the ice, or make you feel uncomfortable, let me know, let your coach know, let 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 your mom know, like, you know, because we want to normalize it's okay to, to say something, you know, but I feel like when you read that report and, and saw Kyle Beats, like, that was, it was jarring for a lot of reasons, but especially where the fact is, like, all these adults failed these kids at so many levels, yeah. you know, you're just like, and one other thing, like, makes hockey different from other sports, like, these kids, like, their singular goal is to make it to the show, you know, no matter what. And, like, and then, you know, you have someone that says, like, if you don't go along with this experience, you won't make it. And, unfortunately, that's kind of what's been happening where people start to accept things they normally wouldn't because they want to make it, they want to play hockey. <laughs> well, you can read all about uh, hockey's culture and how to fix it in Evan Moore's new book, Game Misconduct, Tab Bamford, and Illustrated History of the Chicago Blackhawks. And my book, The Big 50, The Men and Moments That Made the Chicago Blackhawks, available wherever books are sold, but go to Bookies Chicago, Bookies Homewood, to buy your copy. And if that's not an option, bookshop.org is fantastic to support uh, local booksellers. Uh, Jeff Bezos does not need any more of your money, so make sure you support a nice local bookseller. And if not, again, bookshop.org is a great option that distributes money to small independent bookstores. So... For Evan Moore, for Tam Banford, I'm Jay Zawoski. Thanks, everybody, for coming. Thanks to Keith and Bookies for having us. We appreciate your time and attention. All right, I hope you enjoyed the conversation from Bookies Bookstore in Chicago. Bookiesbookstores.com is the website. Bookiesbookstores, plural, dot com. That was Evan Moore, author of Game Misconduct, Hockey's Toxic Culture and How to Fix It. Tab Banford an illustrated history of the Chicago Blackhawks, and of course, me, Jay Zawoski, with the Big 50, the men and moments that made the Chicago Blackhawks. I hope you enjoyed that conversation as much as we enjoyed having it. Appreciate you listening to that episode and all episodes 
of the Madhouse Chicago Hockey Podcast. The Madhouse Chicago Hockey Podcast was brought to you by Fry the Coop, Triple Threat Sports, and by the Sits In Law Group. I'm Amira Rose Davis, historian and co-host of the sports podcast, Burn It All Down. And now I'm hosting the new season of American Prodigy, all about Black girls in gymnastics. For the last 40 years, Black gymnasts have moved from the margins to the core of the sport and changed gymnastics along the way. Now, they tell their stories. You'll meet trailblazers like Diane Durham, superstars like Jordan Childs, and everyone in between. Listen to American Prodigies on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts.